2 Timothy chapter 3. Tonight we'll study verses 1 through 5. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 1 through 5. The passage sounds like this. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid men such as these. If you'll recall, at the end of chapter 2, Paul had instructed Timothy not to be quarrelsome, but to be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. In the interest of simple honesty, the apostle admits this is not going to be an easy task. Anyone who thinks it is has never been in ministry or has been in for a relatively brief time. Local churches are populated by and large by good people many of whom have different views on how things should be done, all of whom, all of whom have old sin natures, just like the ones that those in leadership possess. Our text tonight, and listen carefully to this, because if you don't get this part, you're going to misunderstand the rest. Our text tonight does not imply that anyone who challenges pastoral leadership in a local church is doing so as a result of the function of the Olson nature. doesn't imply that. Not at all. And I want to be clear on that from the outset. So please take note that you will um, pay particular attention to that so that you won't be offended later. This passage does not say there cannot be legitimate complaints, legitimate criticisms made of a leadership of any local church. Leaders are fallible, the individuals are fallible. That's not what this passage is about. Righteous criticism does happen. The Spirit can and does work through all the members of a local church. Some of you have been in situations where the Spirit had to work in a critical way in a local church in order to get some things done. Perhaps something that was not righteous was occurring, and so the membership had to get together and and, and do the best to correct that. So righteous criticism is a possibility because the Holy Spirit works through more than just one individual in a church. Hopefully you're all filled with the Spirit right now, walking in fellowship with God. And uh, that's a reality. But the other side of the coin, the other side of the coin is that the sinful nature that we inherited from Adam is alive and well. And it also can and does work through various members of the local church to create problems, something that's not necessarily righteous criticism. So righteous criticism and unrighteous criticism are both realities in any given local church. So in our passage tonight, Paul instructs Timothy concerning what God has revealed would take place in what are here called the last days. Now this, the study tonight is going to be a negative one. There will will be the reality that people will use their old sin natures in a church to make it difficult. Some might say impossible, but let's just leave it at difficult, because I I believe that we're 
called upon to do this, but would make it very difficult for Timothy not to be quarrelsome. It would make it difficult for him to be able to be kind to all, to be able to teach, to be patient when wronged, and to correct with gentleness. So Paul doesn't want to act like this is just going to be a piece of cake for this to happen, because there are the reality, the realities of these types of people that are in a local church. Paul gives Timothy this warning to help him face the realities of ministry with his eyes wide open. It's easy to become disillusioned when one has unrealistic expectations in ministry. Many fine men have been eaten up and spit out by situations in local churches because they had expectations of what it would be like that were simply not consistent with reality. I had the privilege of, of talking to a younger pastor even this week about this very thing. He says, you didn't tell me that it was going to be like that. I said, actually, I did. He just didn't hear me because he only wanted to hear the one part. He's going to make it just fine, but, but we have to go into it with our eyes wide open. And that's all Paul is telling Timothy here tonight. You need to have your eyes wide open. These things are also a reality. Let me attempt to illustrate this truth from another arena before we get into our text itself tonight. The, 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 the idea of unrealistic expectations. Tonight we're talking about unrealistic expectations in the church, and Paul's trying to bring those expectations in line with reality. But what about another area? Let's take marriage. Unrealistic expectations in marriage can doom a marriage even before it gets off the ground. Now, this doesn't mean, as some have taught, that one ought to go into marriage with very low expectations. I believe that's the wrong way to go in. Uh, that's, uh, I don't even think that's God-honoring to go into a, a marriage relationship with that kind of attitude. But to enter marriage thinking that there will never be a dispute and that it's going to be 50-plus years of unbroken fellowship and daily unrestrained expressions of physical attraction is divorced from reality. Was that euphemistic enough? I thought it might be. Some of you, it wasn't euphemistic enough for some of you, I guess. But that's just unreality. And all jokes aside, that kind of unrealistic expectation has led to the breakup of many Christian marriages that should have never broken up. Many fine Relationship, fine Christian relationships have been shattered to pieces because the unrealistic expectations of one or the other or both of the parties in that marriage. They, they've built up their partner as if they were some sort of god or goddess. Then one day they realize that their partner is not a god or goddess. They have feet of clay just like you do. They have flaws just like you do. And instead of recognizing that that's a reality, people have flaws... You shatter the whole relationship because it's not perfect. That's not biblical. It's not God-honoring. It's not Christ-like. It's not what we're commanded to do. Again, we're not to go into it with low expectations. I'm not saying that. But we must go into it with realistic expectations that you're marrying another human being. That's the re you're marrying another human being that's got an old sin nature just like you. So when you see her flaws, when you see his flaws and you get upset, then just take a deep breath, go and look in the mirror, and you'll realize you have a couple, five or ten also. We all do. So you see how unrealistic expectations can ruin, unrealistic expectations can ruin a friendship. 
if you expect more out of it than somebody else is possibly able to give, you're going to be in big trouble. And that happens in the church. Now, this passage is speaking of it from the leadership position. It's taking it from that view. But I want you to know it, it needs to be understood from both directions. Sometimes it has happened where those in the pew have unrealistic expectations of the one in the pulpit. And I don't want you to lower your expectations to an unreasonable level either. But I want you to know that the one that's in the pulpit, whoever occupies that on any one given Sunday, has an old sin nature just like you do, is fallible just like you do, just like you are, can make mistakes. Hopefully you keep them to a minimum. But unrealistic expectations, either from the pastoral side looking at those in the pew, or from the pew looking at the pastor, can doom a church just like it can doom a marriage. I know of a man who had, had great theology at one point in his life. Pastored in an area of the country where um, lasciviousness is prominent. And even maybe some antinomianism thrown in for good measure. Looked at it his congregation one day and became very disappointed because he saw marriages breaking up. He saw people on drugs. He saw people committing adultery. And he thought, he, he looked, he internalized that, and he said, this is a very large church. And actually, most of you know the pastor's name. I don't want to say it. I won't. But he, he looked out over the congregation and looked in the mirror and said, something is terribly wrong with me. If I've already ministered to this church, I think it was almost 20 years at the time, and this is the result that has been gotten, then I must be doing a terrible, terrible job. Left the ministry for a period of time. The problem is he came back and changed his theology and said that those people weren't saved in the first place. Now, that's, that was a difficult theology to come back with. I think it was the wrong theology. But it's because he had unrealistic expectations of those to whom he ministered. You know, they're, they're, those things are going to happen. We don't ordain them. We don't, we don't bless them. But when they do, we shouldn't be shattered by the fact that some people are going to fail. We don't, we don't celebrate it either. But we do recognize it's a, a possibility. Now, Paul's going to give us a list tonight. He's going to give Timothy this list. We're going to look in on it. Of some of the things that are going to happen in the last days. But realize this, he says to Timothy. What he's trying to do is pull him back into reality. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. The last days here doesn't necessarily refer to those final days where the clock is ticking right up until the time of the rapture. Sometimes we look at that. We look at a passage like this and we see, oh yeah, people are becoming boastful, arrogant, lovers of money, disobedient to parents. Well, we must be right. We must be in the rapture generation. Not quite so fast. Because what Paul is telling Timothy, referring to these last days, Timothy's in them right then. This is a reality in Ephesus right now. So the way Paul is using the phrase last days in 2 Timothy refers to the entirety of what we call the church age. All the way from the first advent to the, the point in time where Jesus will come again for his church. It's not, it's not the last ticks of the clock. It's the last days, relatively speaking, with regard to age of Israel moving through from first advent to second advent. So this is a reality now. This is not something we have to look to for the future. I find it interesting when I read different authors from different periods in the church. 
I, I think J. Gresham Machen back in 1924, when he writes his book, What is Faith? Uh, he's very, very concerned with the immorality that he saw around him in 1924. And we think back, well, that was the golden age. How could there be any immorality back in 1924? I thought it was perfection. Matter of fact, you listen to some folks. I know it's the Roaring Twenties and all that, but I mean, you look at some, listen to some folks, at least folks that are, you know, maybe from that era and talking to us, uh, we're the most degenerate generations ever lived. We might have taken degeneration to a new high, but there was degeneration back then. All you got to do is read some of the pastors back at that time. You go back and read some of the reformers. They were, they were pretty convinced people were as degenerate as you could get back in their day as well. Augustine was pretty convinced that, that the, the, on the periphery of the Roman Empire where he was, that things were about as degenerate as you can get. The reality is we've been in these last days since Jesus ascended. Now, in that sense, the last days meaning, in this passage, the church age. Timothy was already then in the last days, but they would continue to grow worse. Hence, no post-millennialism. The world's not going to get better and better. We will have these problems. These times would be difficult for everybody, but especially for those Christians who would like to be faithful. And I do agree with that. It's getting tougher. It's very difficult for a Christian who would like to be faithful to find a movie you can go to and have it not offend at least some of your sensibilities. Now we almost have to do it relatively when it's only this. So we, you know, we can take, you know, we do it. Uh, billboards, uh, uh, advertisements. It, it, the bombardment from Satan does seem to be never ceasing, but it was a problem back then too. So Paul lists 19 specific characteristics of these last days. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 31, there's a similar list given. And in that context, when Paul does it in Romans chapter 1, verses, uh, verses 29 through 31, rather, when he does it in Romans 1, 29 through 31, the passage there is, in the context, is definitely speaking of an unbeliever. There's no question about that. But the individuals described in this list probably include both believers and unbelievers with believers most likely in view, and in light of what Paul is telling Timothy. I know it's going to be difficult for you to be kind to all and answer gently, because these are the types of people that you're going to be working with. Keep again in mind, this was a list of characteristics of unbelievers in Romans chapter 1, but this also shows us that believers can exhibit these characteristics as well. Some might be people who are pretending to be believers. That's true. We'll see that in verse 5. But let's get to the list itself. And as we go through the list, I think you'll see that certainly believers can and do practice these things, although they are characteristic of those who live under the old headship, the headship of Adam. In, this, in these last days, men will be lovers of self. They will be self-centered and narcissistic Actually, this particular characteristic, I believe, governs the rest of the list. Kind of like when he gives qualifications for elder, pastor, bishop, in other places. The, the, the qualification above reproach, I believe, governs the rest of the qualifications. Here, I believe, self-centered and narcissistic governs the rest of the list. Francis Schaeffer said as much in his book, True Spirituality, and most all sin, he said, if not all sin, is filtered through the command not to lust command not to be arrogant and proud. And if you think about it, when I want to take my neighbor's wife, I am arrogant and proud, thinking that 
I have more of a right to that than he does. When I want to take my neighbor's property, that's a, a sin of lust, a sin of pride. And so Paul begins with this, uh, this description, lovers of self. Secondly, lovers of money. This was also mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3 and verse 8. Lovers of money. The third characteristic, boastful of their own importance. Boy, isn't that characteristic of the day in which we live. I think sometimes, used to it was art that reflected society. Now I believe Dostoevsky was the one that said that, that art drives society now. Art drives culture. But I think if you really want to see what's going on in a culture today and you don't want to go to a museum... All you really have to do is turn on the television and watch a sporting event because you'll really see how, how the, the culture is being reflected in the way that these sporting events are run and the way that people celebrate after a single basket or celebrate after a, a touchdown. If I was a football coach, I'd do just like Jeff Fisher did when he was here with the Houston Oilers. I'd say, listen, when you score a touchdown, won't you just walk back, hand the ball to the referee, and act like it's not the first time you ever did it or it's the last time you're ever going to do it. Because if, if I was the head coach in the NFL, I would, I would bench anybody that did an end zone celebration at least by themselves. Because that wide receiver just forgot that a quarterback had to throw the ball. He got smashed in the face when he did it. And six, six seven linemen had to block. The other receivers had to run their routes in order for that to happen. It's not a one-man show. But we're, as a culture, and it's reflected in the way we play our games. It's reflect, you can see it in kids on the playground. Trash talking and, and uh, doing some of the things they do. It reflects the fact that they're lovers of self. That they're boastful of their own importance. Now, what would be the opposite of that if we were given the positive? Humility. In Philippians chapter 2, we, we see that that's a, one of the characteristics of Christ that we should emulate. A cousin to that, proud or arrogant in attitude, is the fourth one. The fifth one is abusive toward others. It's actually a word, a Greek word, where we get our English word blasphemy. And we don't technically blasphemy, we don't commit blasphemy in that sense that we commit it against God. But we can injure others. We can be abusive toward others. Now, I know what you're thinking, and let me just dispel it right now. You're thinking, now, wait a minute. I don't believe any believer is ever going to, in the context of a local church, be abusive to another believer. I just don't think that has ever happened. Why don't you stick around for a little while afterwards, and we'll have a private session over here, and I'll just tell you about the last week. you know, Because it does happen where believers abuse other believers. Now, hopefully not physically. Of course, that's happened too, tragically, in the church in times past. But, uh, but verbal abuse, oh yeah. That happens. Do, do we have people in, in our churches who are lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant? Yeah, we do. So this is not just a reality out there. What Paul is saying is that it can be a reality in here. It ought not to be. This list is not an excuse for you to be any one of these things. So that's just the way I am. We'll, get, we'll change it then. There's too much at stake. But this is these are possibilities. The sixth one is unresponsive to parental discipline. My, my Bible says disobedient to parents. That's probably better put than even what I have here. Unresponsive to parental discipline. Does that ever happen with Christian kids? Yeah. It can. Ungrateful, unthankful, unappreciative. That ever happen in a church? 
Yeah, they can. Impure and unholy. So even in verse 2, we've already kind of taken a beating, and we hadn't even got to the rest of it. We're only about halfway through the list right here. But yes, these are things that are going to make it difficult for Timothy to treat everybody in gentleness, being kind to all, correcting in, in this sort of way. This is the reality. He wants Timothy to know it's a reality so he can go into it and not be shocked when it happens. So he doesn't have unrealistic expectations. So he doesn't walk out the first time somebody is verbally abusive to him. Or the first time he sees someone in the church reviling or, or, or uh, uh, children being disobedient to parents. So that he doesn't look out at his church one day and see people fornicating and committing adultery and doing, and doing drugs and various other things and then walk away and change his theology. If he'd have read this passage, maybe we wouldn't have a lot of that problem right now. You know? Because he would have realized, now, now I know how they'd take it, these are only unbelievers. That's not the context. The context is what's going on in the local church. Furthermore, we need to move for, for the sake of time in verse 3. Furthermore, they would be unloving. This could also be translated heartless or calloused or hateful. The tenth characteristic, they could be unforgiving or irreconcilable. The eleventh characteristics, here my Bible says malicious gossip. They could be slanderers of others. This is one of those things that I think we don't even have to chuckle about this. This is a dangerous, dangerous problem for a local church. Whispering behind people's back. You know what I heard about her? You know what I heard about him? This, this is verbal murder. Because you can, you can blow somebody's reputation right out of the water with no proof at all. Before you go whispering, make sure that you have a legitimate reason to do the whispering, and the whispering is, is, is going to be done in order to help the person, not hurt them. Also make sure it's true. Be careful how you do this. Um, you know, some, some churches are famous for gossip. They're not famous for fornicating, and they're not famous for drinking wine. They'd never do that in 100 years. But they'll gossip you right out of town. And I'm telling you something. I know friends of mine in the ministry who have been gossiped right out of town because they had unrealistic expectations of what they were working with. Again, there's unrealistic expectations from the, from the pulpit to the pew. There can be unrealistic expectations from the pew to the pulpit. It can work both ways. The twelfth characteristic Paul mentions is lacking in self-control. The thirteenth characteristic, brutal. I don't know how much more clean you, plain you can get than that. Brutal. This could also mean brutish or perhaps even uncivilized. There's something to be said for civility in a church, isn't there? You know, you got my chair. <laughs> you got my parking place. Listen, there's no assigned seating anywhere. Okay? There's no assigned seating. We have certain seats that are assigned for those in our congregation that are in need, have a special need, a handicap, you know, need a wheelchair, something like that. But otherwise, somebody's got the seat you usually sit in. Why don't you just not be brutal, brutish, or uncivilized and sit next to them and talk to them? How about that? <laughs> Instead of walking around the corner and gossiping about them. In the early days of our church, my mother came in. 
I guess she's here. I shouldn't say. My mother came in. (laughs) She was sitting in someone's seat. She was a visitor at the church that day, and one of the people who was a member of the church came up and said, You're sitting in my seat. Move. I don't know that he even knew it was my mother, but it did get reported to me. That was brutal, brutish, and uncivilized. I'll tell you who that was after we leave tonight. I'm glad that you don't remember that. I remember it because it humiliated me. You know, as a pastor of that church, I was aghast when I, when I uh, saw that. The 14th characteristic is haters of good, which means antagonistic toward whatever is good. And that's not a characteristic that we want in a local church. The fourth verse, just a few more of these. They would also be treacherous, which means disposed toward betrayal. They would be headstrong. This also could be understood as reckless. They would be conceited. You see how many synonyms for pride we're getting in here? A bunch of them, aren't we? Puffed up with pride, wrapped in a mist of self-delusion. The 18th characteristic is devoted to personal pleasure rather than to God. Devoted to my own comfort. And how many times in the scripture do we have to read that love is looking out after the other guy? Maybe they were so tired they couldn't move another inch. They had to sit in the first seat they came to. Maybe they're a visitor at the church. They wanted to sit on the back row so they could leave quickly, you know. <laughs> so, you know. Maybe there's a reason they're sitting in your seat. And maybe maybe we want to set aside our own needs and look out after the needs of others. It's very Philippians 2-ish, isn't it? And finally, in verse 5, believe it or not, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied it's powerful. They would make a pretense of being religious, or if you prefer, spiritual. But at the same time, they would deny the true source of spiritual power, the Holy Spirit himself and the Word of God. It's just pretend. There are pretend believers. And there are people who are believers that are pretending to walk in fellowship and have your best interest in mind. And this is a reality in the church. This is reality. Check, I told you this was kind of the negative part of this whole thing tonight. I hope it doesn't get you down. That would be a wrong outcome for this. We're just trying to have realistic expectations. These things can be a reality. They shouldn't be a reality. But they can be. Now the last phrase deserves a a bit of comment, and we'll close with this. Timothy was to avoid association with people who had demonstrated these characteristics, except, of course, for purposes of evangelism and instruction. You don't just walk away. Somebody disappoints you. Somebody walks in one day and is gossiping. It doesn't mean you turn your back on them and never have anything to do with them. That's not the point. But if they exhibit a consistent behavior in that way, you don't want to be going to coffee with them all the time. You don't want to be meeting them for breakfast because evil companions corrupt good morals and it's going to end up pulling you down too. So Timothy is not to associate with people that are doing these things, except for the purpose, of course, of ministering to them. And then there's a point in time where you have to say that's enough. To those of us who think that Christian love is a matter of infinite toleration of most anyone or anything, Paul's closing statement in verse 5 should be an eye-opener. Avoid such men as these. Let me close by saying this. It is not unloving to call something that is wrong, wrong. 
true, we may sometimes be guilty of expressing that particular truth in an unloving way. We should most definitely speak the truth in love. But somehow, in some circles, the act of expressing the truth itself has been considered unloving. And that's not what this passage teaches. We have to look at it with our eyes wide open. When something is wrong, we should call it wrong. Woe to those, the prophet says, who calls that which is wrong right and that which is right wrong. There may be a day in our country when expressing the truth becomes a hate crime. Perhaps that day is closer than we think. I'm not a prophet, so I'm not going to speculate any further on that particular idea, at least at this point. Perhaps that might be a reality someday. But even when it is, we have to speak the truth in love. We'll just have to suffer the consequences when it happens. So at the end of verse, at the end of chapter 2, Paul has told Timothy, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive to him by his will. And then in the first part of chapter 3, Paul says, oh, by the way, that's not going to be the easiest thing in the world to do. Because in the days in which you minister, difficult times are going to come. And there will be unrealistic expectations. If you go into this thinking it's real easy, you're going to get blasted, Timothy, because these characteristics are a reality. People will be self-centered, lovers of money, boastful of their own importance, proud, arrogant, abusive toward others, unresponsive to parental discipline, ungrateful, unthankful, unappreciative, impure, holy, unholy, heartless, unforgiving, slanderous, lacking in self-control, brutish, antagonistic toward whatever is good, disposed toward betrayal, headstrong, reckless, conceited, puffed up with pride, devoted to personal pleasure, all the while acting like they're a nice, fine Christian. That makes it a little difficult. So Timothy needed to have realistic expectation. In our passage tonight, Paul instructs Timothy concerning what God has revealed that would take place in the, called in this passage, the latter days, the entirety of the church age. And he did so so that Timothy would have realistic expectations as to what to expect in the ministry.